1: Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 250 miles above the Earth. Traveling at five miles a second, a man completes a perfect circle around the globe. His name is Sergei Krakalev. He's a Soviet cosmonaut, and he's manning the world's only space station. The pride and joy of the USSR. The year is 1991. Sergei has been up there for three months by now. On the space station, every day starts the same way, with a call at 7 a.m. Moscow time from Mission Control. He reports his stats, blood pressure, heart rate, and mood. Sometimes in the evening, when he feels lonely, he will tune his ham radio equipment to the right frequency and make contact with his friend in Australia, Maggie. They chat about what he's done that day, and she sends him clippings from the newspapers. Oh,
0: that's a pleasure, a pleasure to do. Uh, No problems there.
1: As the days bleed into one another, he's starting to feel a bit space sick. He's been counting down the weeks till he's due to come back to Earth, back to his home, his wife, and their one-year-old daughter. But then one day his friend, this woman in Australia, Maggie, tells him something troubling. She says, Sergey, something bad is happening in your country.
0: After months, strikes, protests, deepening economic chaos.
1: People are sleeping in train stations. There is no food in the shops.
0: I gave them my money, but they should... Old woman, we won't give you your bread.
1: Law and order seem to be breaking down. Persons
2: took to the streets calling for the disbanding of the KGB.
1: President Gorbachev's grip on the country is slipping. The republics that make up the Soviet Union are starting to break away.
3: There were wild scenes, gunfire and three deaths as Soviet forces tried to capture the main center of opposition.
1: Sergey doesn't know what to think. He asks mission control what's going on, but they don't tell him anything just parrot the party line. Nothing to be alarmed about. Everything is fine. And so Sergei is floating around the space station, struggling to believe that down there on Earth, everything he knows, everything he believes in, is falling apart.
2: Word rippled through the crowds that the army was about to launch a major assault.
1: 74 years of communism. 74 years of trying to create a different way of life, a different society, a different vision of the world, is on the verge of collapse.
2: It's quite time uh, for communism to die in Russia and in Soviet Union too.
1: Sergei still has to do his job. The station has to have an engineer on board, or it might shut down. But he's doing it on autopilot, his minds firmly on his loved ones, wondering if they're okay, if they are safe. And then one day, he wakes up to a message from his handlers on the ground. They tell him, We can't keep this from you anymore. It's true. Everything is collapsing around us, including the Soviet Space Agency. We've run out of money. We can't send anyone to replace you. So we're giving you a choice. You can come back down to Earth as planned and abandon the station to an unknown fate, or you stay as long as it takes and protect the station, the final outpost of a falling empire. Sergei knows the longer you spend in space, the more your muscles start to disintegrate. Your bones weaken, headaches, nausea, vomiting. And then there's what might happen to your mind. Something called space horror. Where being up in space so far away from home will literally drive you insane. So what is Sergei going to do? Go back to Earth? Be with his family? his newborn daughter in these truly desperate times? Or stay in space, save the space station, serve his country, the very last Soviet. This is the story of one man who lived through the final days of empire. Good evening, the East Germans of tonight started to tear down parts of the Berlin Wall. The collapse of one dream. All Russia's just wild about Yuri Gagarin, first man to conquer space. And the birth of another future for the Russian people. Historians may have trouble describing a day when Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as the president of a Soviet Union. All from a unique and perhaps ultimate vantage point. Space and the colors are unbelievably
3: beautiful. This incredible band, thin, beautiful band,
1: an electric blue. I'm Lance Bass, and from Kaleidoscope, iHeart Podcast, and XL content, this is The Last Soviet. Now, you may be wondering, why am I, Lance Bass, from InSync of all people, telling this story about a Soviet cosmonaut? Well, you probably won't believe this, but I am a trained Russian cosmonaut. Yeah, you heard that right. In 2002, I was at the end of an international NSYNC tour that felt like it had been going on forever. I was about to have my first real break in years, six months off, to do what I wanted like sleep, and see my family. And then I was sitting at home in Orlando, having a little breakfast, probably a green smoothie and pancakes, and I get this call on my phone. It's my manager. Lance, what would you say if I told you I've got you a ticket on a Russian space rocket? (laughs) I almost dropped my phone. To be honest, I thought it was a prank. But pretty quickly, it became clear. This was real.
0: Thank you, John. 6:57. Now, finally, this morning, one in-sync band member is one step closer to saying bye, bye, bye to planet Earth.
1: I would be going to Moscow to train for six months to go on a mission to the International Space Station.
0: The final deal hasn't been signed yet, but the Russians have named Lance Bass as a member of the third person,
1: person. At just 23 years old, I was going to become the youngest person in history to go to space.
0: To the space station in October. <laughs> Stephanie, he's too young for you. I didn't that. Russia's approval is a significant day. Now,
1: if that sounds crazy to you, crazy that I would want to use my precious six months off to take part in one of the most intense and grueling experiences of my life, then I think there's something you need to understand. I am absolutely, madly obsessed with space. I have been ever since I was a little kid when my family drove from Mississippi to Cape Canaveral in Florida to watch a rocket launch. 14 hours in a car, hot and humid, like someone was breathing on you. We arrived in my dad's blue station wagon, pulled up to the launch site, and that's when I saw it. In front of me, a gigantic rocket. And this big clock in the distance, and it starts counting down from two minutes. And then as it gets closer to zero, there is this rumbling that comes from beneath the ground. And then this burst of fire. And an unbelievable noise as the rumbling turns into a roar. And the rocket starts rising up and up. As it keeps climbing, the crowd is getting more and more excited. Until finally, it disappears into the atmosphere, up and away, into the great beyond. It was that day in Cape Canaveral when the dream of going to space took hold of me. It was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and since then, it's all I've ever wanted to do. Even when I was living this incredible life touring with Sync, I still had this desire, this dream, to go to space. And that's why when my manager called me that day, I jumped at the chance. And just a few months later, I arrived at Svezdone Gorodok, Star City, the home of Russia's top-secret cosmonaut training program. When I got there in 2002, I remember thinking, this place, these people are obsessed with space even more than we are in America. There are these statues of cosmonauts everywhere. Even the metro stations are named after them. But back then, I didn't really get a chance to figure out why this was. I hardly even had time to think. I was so busy training day and night. So when I first heard the story of Sergei Krakalev, I was intrigued. We had both trained in the same place, but we had come from such different worlds. Me, an American pop star, Him, a Soviet cosmonaut. And I wanted to know, what was going through his head when he had to make this choice? To go back home and protect his family, or stay in space and protect the station? The crown jewel of the Soviet space program. Was it just that he loved space so much like me? Or was there something bigger driving him? Because space isn't just about nerdy kids thinking it's cool and wanting to go. Space, it turns out, is always about politics. We go into space because whatever mankind must undertake, three men must fully share.
2: Billionaire Elon Musk has sent three batches of SpaceX Starlink satellites over Ukraine. Russia's war is putting years of collaboration at risk.
1: And we will plant our beautiful American flag very soon on the surface of Mars. Which I guess space is a battleground, a symbol of power. And that's because of this thing that happened before I was even born, when Sergey was three years old. And to me, it's the thing that can maybe best help us understand Sergei and how he could even consider staying in the space station as his country collapsed below him. It was the height of the Cold War, and my country, America, and his country, the Soviet Union, were racing to answer this one particular question. Who would be the first to put a man into space? The confrontation itself would determine, ultimately, which ideology, which worldview would take over the world. Stephen Walker is a journalist who wrote a book about the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. The battle began in 1961. At the time, Sergei Korolev was a toddler, and the Americans announced to the world, we're going to put the first man in space, as if it was a done deal. The Russians weren't even on their mind. Here's a nation that, as far as they were concerned, the USSR couldn't build refrigerators that work properly. It's true. Soviet test flights often went wrong. One of their spacecraft blew up just seconds after taking off, killing 100 people. But these disasters didn't matter because the Soviets were determined. They decided they were going to surprise the Americans and do it in complete secrecy. They start looking at the records
3: of USSR Air Force pilots, most of them in their early to mid-20s, all of them. sound of limb and mind, incredibly healthy, incredibly fit, and ideologically committed to the Soviet cause. And these are the guys that form the nucleus of the top secret Soviet space program. And one of them is this guy, Yuri Gagarin.
1: Yuri Gagarin. A man who would end up being the most famous person in Russia, and Sergei Krakulov's hero. At the time, he was one of 20 men chosen by the Soviet authorities to compete to be the first man in space. 20 men chosen to be put through intense physical and psychological training. And when I say intense, I mean intense. So, I mean, they do these
3: horrible heat chamber tests, for example, where they kind of bake them for hours on end. They put them into pressure chambers where they depressurize to see when they pass out. They put them into these unbelievable vibration tests where they actually lie on these stretchers and then they start to vibrate the stretcher
1: to the point where your teeth nearly fall out. But nothing can compare to the isolation chamber.
3: One by one, over a period of months and months, each of these 20 men would be introduced into a sealed Chamber in which they were expected to function without being able to see anybody or hear anybody for what could be days and days and even weeks, totally isolated, cut off. They would occasionally put horrible sounds in there shrieks or very loud music or wake you up in the middle of the night, you know, anything, so you couldn't sleep properly. They would twist time upside down, so you didn't know whether it was day or night.
1: The tests on these men were so intense because the Soviet space team had this problem. They
3: didn't really know what's going to happen to a human
1: being up there. Up to that point, the idea of human beings in space was only something that existed in the realms of science fiction.
2: Nothing in the station has any weight.
0: No weight? What a wonderful idea. You
2: mean if I went there, I wouldn't wear anything? Nothing at all.
3: They had this term called space horror. If you're divorced from the world, traveling around the world, above it, not part of it, the first to do so, is there a possibility that you'd go insane?
1: Because of these unknowns, the Soviets knew they needed to find the perfect guy. The guy who could withstand anything. And in the end, it came down to two men. Both were pretty much as good and tough as each other. But it was Gagarin that won. For one reason. He has a perfect communist
3: biography. He's the son of a peasant from the country who was an iron foundry student who then became a serving military
1: pilot. He was the best person to represent the Soviet Union against the United States because the Soviets knew they needed to beat the Americans to score the ultimate victory in the Cold War. And so on April 12th, 1961, they pressed the go button on Gagarin's flight. He's then bussed out on what looks like a school
3: bus to the rocket launch site and then everybody says goodbye, and the goodbyes go on forever, because as far as they're concerned, this guy's gonna die.
1: That's right. Odds are Yuri Gagarin is not gonna survive the first few minutes of the flight. So many
3: gruesome deaths awaited Yuri Gagarin.
0: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: It's almost like being on another planet, it just goes on forever and ever and ever.
1: And then you reach this sort of walled city. It's in the middle of a desert, a city with guards standing around the perimeter. You know, you get these huge buildings
3: with holes in them and everything's rusting and it's corroded. And then you see it, littered around the streets, bits of old rocket all over the place. It really looks like a disused, enormous missile
1: site. Because really, that's what it is. It's in Kazakhstan, and it's called Baikonur. It's the place that would become the launch pad for the Soviet space program. But originally, it was built to house their most advanced and deadly missiles. I mean, it's quite extraordinary.
3: They built the biggest rocket site in the world. I mean, the Americans didn't know about it. They had no idea that the site even existed. We're talking about a site that is probably about the same size as
1: the state of Kentucky, it's secret. It's a place where the conditions are extreme. It's
3: incredibly hot in the summer, and in the winter it goes down to the minus 40s. I mean,
1: it's really horrible. But every year, in April, something extraordinary happens there. Out of this dead ground springs something new.
3: Every spring, the whole of the step is
1: covered with a carpet of tulips. These incredible pink and purple and yellow tulips springing up from the dirt. And so it was in April, 1961, as the tulips started to peek their heads out from under the earth and the desert was filled with a riot of color. Yuri Gagarin stood at the base of an enormous rocket, ready to change the course of world history. And so he walks up to the steel steps and enters the elevator. Up he goes. So high up, it feels like it takes minutes rather than seconds. But eventually he gets there, walks out of the elevator, and straps himself into his seat. The hatch is closed. And then, he's on his own.
3: Gagarin actually remains really cool through this process. In fact, he starts asking for some music from what we would now call Mission Control, and they start supplying him with songs and music. And there's music that's piped through into his headphones, and he starts singing.
1: He starts singing Lilies of the Valley, a popular song about the first flowers coming out of the ground. A song about spring about New Horizons. I
3: mean, he's quite cool, actually, in there, given what was about to happen. And then he's ready for launch. 10. He could die in the next few seconds. 9. He could die in the next hour. God only knows the different ways he could die. 8. He could be stranded in space. 7. He could blow up on the launch pad. 6. He could be burned to a crisp coming back to Earth. 5, 4, 3. So many systems not properly tested, some which he doesn't even know about. Two, he doesn't even know everything about what could go wrong in that rocket. One. And then he's launched.
1: Gagarin hears a whistling noise, then a deafening roar. The rocket and everything in it begins to tremble. Gagarin's stomach flips, and his head feels full of pressure. Like he's being slowly sucked up into the air. He tries to move his arms and legs, but nothing. Like his body's not his anymore. He takes a long, deep breath. And then from nowhere, he shouts. "I'm Which means, let's
3: go. And off he went. Upwards.
1: And upwards. And upwards. And as the rocket heads upwards, the booster rockets fall away. Gagarin keeps gathering speed. 15,000 miles an hour. 16,000. 17,000. Until he reaches 18,000 miles an hour, the speed a rocket needs to get past the pull of Earth's gravity and out of the atmosphere. And down below, the engineers are beside themselves.
3: Downing aspirins like nobody's business down in the bunker. Everybody, I've spoken to engineers there that talk about being drenched in sweat. There was incredible feeling of fear as well as exhilaration, this this, this excitement, fear, sense of danger, potentially disaster, all happening.
1: But Gagarin keeps going. Nine minutes, 10 minutes, faster and faster, higher and higher until he reaches orbit.
3: Something completely incredible happens. He suddenly feels himself lifting from his seat and he's just held in by the straps. He's experiencing the effects of weightlessness in orbit. And then he looks to his right and he says, I can see the earth. I can see the earth. And the colors are unbelievably beautiful. This incredible band, thin, beautiful band, a sort of translucent I and mean,
1: electric, I think he describes it, blue. It's the Earth's atmosphere. And he is the first man ever to see it. The first man to break the shackles of Earth. And it was a Soviet who had done it. As you can imagine, it's not a secret the Soviets want to keep anymore. They had
3: a very famous announcer called Levitan, who would announce all the very big moments, like the beginning of World War II, the death of Stalin. All of that he had announced. He was brought in to announce this in
0: 1961.
1: His voice came on the radio. And all over Russia, people were listening. Gagarin's father, who had no idea his son was in space, his wife, who also was never told about his flight, and little boys like Sergei Krakalev crowded around the radio in their homes, their parents proudly telling them that the Soviet Union has put a man in space.
0: space,
1: And pretty soon the news starts to rocket around the world and it reaches the United States, where President Kennedy is sleeping.
3: He was woken up by his butler in the White House to a battery of news.
0: All Russia's just wild about Yuri Gagarin, first man to conquer space. Modest, just a family man. It was
3: was on every television station. It was, of course, everywhere. It was the news. And later that afternoon, he had to go before 400 members of the press in a massive press conference where he was unable even to utter the name Yuri Gagarin.
1: Well, it is a most impressive uh, scientific uh, accomplishment. And also, I think that uh, we, uh, all of us, uh, as members of the race,
0: have the greatest uh, admiration for the uh, Russian who participated in this extraordinary feat. I have
1: already sent uh,
0: congratulations
1: to uh, Mr. Khrushchev. In 1 hour and 29 minutes, Yuri Gagarin completes one full orbit of the planet. But now, the engineers in the control room are biting their nails again. Because Yuri Gagarin has to make it home alive. And to do that, he has to break back through the Earth's atmosphere. He starts his descent almost immediately. The porthole window fills with hot, orange gas, and Gagarin suddenly feels like he's being pushed back into his seat. He tries to breathe, working hard to get the air into his lungs. His heart rate soars. To calm himself, he sings, the motherland hears, the motherland knows. He sits back and grips the seat. A rushing noise fills his ears, and then he's through. At 23,000 feet, Gagarin is ejected from the capsule. He feels the cold air on his face and a rough tug on his shoulders as the parachute is deployed. And he drifts slowly down to a field. And there he lands, 106
3: minutes after he starts, having traveled all the way around the planet in a plowed field, and there's absolutely nobody there to greet him except a very old woman and a little five-year-old girl who are planting potatoes and who both see him and start running away. But he shouts to the old lady. I'm Soviet, I'm Soviet, I'm Soviet, comrades. And very, very cautiously, the grandmother planting potatoes and her five-year-old daughter come back. So said, here is a guy who's gone around the world In 106 minutes, he's been traveling at 18,000 miles an hour, you know, 10 times the speed of a rifle bullet. He's seen things that no one has ever seen before. Now he's in a plowed field, and he has only a horse and cart in which to get to a telephone.
1: Just days later, he's back in Moscow, being paraded through the streets in a convertible covered with flowers. The scenes are unbelievable. People line the sidewalk, and I'm not just talking thousands or hundreds of thousands. There are millions of people out there. I've seen footage, and it looks like there is not a single empty space along the whole parade route. People are clamoring on top of lampposts and leaning out of balconies, screaming and waving the Soviet flags. White doves are set free. Confetti is thrown from helicopters. Women break the barriers to hand in flowers. It's thought to have been the biggest party in Soviet history. When Gagarin's motorcade reaches the Kremlin, he's kissed on the cheek by the premier, Nikita Khrushchev, and awarded the title Hero of the Soviet Union. This
3: was their moment. This was, and it still is probably to this day, this is Russia's great moment in history. And they made the most of it. This was a real feeling of, my God, we've beaten the most powerful, and the most technologically advanced nation on Earth. We can do anything.
1: The Soviet Union won the race to put the first man in space. It was a huge deal for everyday Russians. And it turned the cosmonaut at the center, Yuri Gagarin, into an icon. So I think it's important for us to understand the level which Yuri Gagarin was a star, a superstar at a level I don't think we can even imagine. This is Asif Siddiqui. He's a professor of space history at Fordham University. There were posters of Yuri Gagarin. There were magazines, there were
3: postcards, there were trinkets, there were toys, there were models, there were
1: record albums. Gagarin was like the Soviet version of Lance Bass and Justin Timberlake. Okay, maybe more John Lennon and Paul McCartney. They even made Gagarin albums although they sounded a little different to Love Me Do. The Soviet Union essentially created a cult of personality around this guy. And I can tell you this is true. In Star City, in Moscow, I remember seeing statues of Gagarin everywhere. He became the ideal figure in Soviet society. Quiet, unassuming, and totally dedicated to the cause of being a Soviet cosmonaut. They were apolitical, and they were young, and dynamic, and handsome, and good-looking. And I think they operated on that level, a kind of quasi-Hollywood culture for young Soviet people. Space was freedom. Space was success. Space became embedded in the day-to-day lives of Soviet citizens. It was everywhere, in the kitchens and bedrooms of Soviet men, women, and children. Children grew up not wanting to be pop stars or soccer players, but to be cosmonauts.
3: Every Soviet or later Russian cosmonaut I've spoken to have all said the same thing. This was the enduring legend that was, for them, an inspiration. It was the thing that helped launch them on this unbelievable career of cosmonauts.
1: Sergei was three years old when Gagarin went to space. His early years were filled with that astonishing success, a symbol of what his country, the Soviet Union, was capable of. And he would follow in Gagarin's exact footsteps, becoming one of an elite class of Soviets to go to space. And so perhaps it's Yuri Gagarin who Sergei Krakalev is thinking of as he floats in space, his country crumbling beneath him, his friends, his family, his fellow Soviets living through chaos. And now he has to decide what to do. Stay in space and man the station, protect what is left of the Soviet Union, or go down to a country in crisis. Now, to be upfront about this, we know a lot about Sergei. We had it all set up. We were going to Moscow to talk to him. It was scheduled for February, 2022. And then Putin's war got in the way. —
0: Vladimir Putin has just addressed the Russian people moments ago, announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation in
1: And so the Russian space agency — in part, a military organization — shut down the interview. Frustrating, but fitting for a story about the way space and politics are so intertwined. Space has become a political battleground again.
2: Russia's war is putting years of collaboration at risk, and the astronauts in the situation, they did not ask for
1: America and Russia once more on opposite sides.
2: The Russia space program has cut ties with the West on
0: almost every front.
1: It's now unthinkable for a high-profile cosmonaut like Sergei to go on an American podcast. But we have spoken to Sergei's friends and his colleagues, to people who have worked with him, and people who have been to space with him to try to understand how he made the decision he did to stay or to go. And so he spends hours thinking of what to do, about his family, about his baby daughter, about his country falling apart, but also about the space station he is manning. It's the first and only space station orbiting the world. Without him, it will die. He looks out the window at the world 250 miles below him, and then he's ready. He calls down to mission control and tells them, I'll stay. And now over the next seven episodes, we're gonna tell the story of Sergei Krakalev. Of those 313 days he spent circling the earth as his country collapsed, 313 days that changed our world. Tanks crushed cars like flimsy toys. Soldiers used nightsticks, smoke bombs. It was an earthquake. It was a a daily earthquake. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle
2: is lowered for the last time, and an era comes to an end. Their pay
0: changed, their rank, their status, everything changed. It was rather like he was a time traveler.
1: That's coming up on The Last Soviet. Oh, and by the way, we're gonna be telling my story as well. This is the pioneering stage. Everyone should and will have the opportunity to travel into space. The Last Soviet is a Kaleidoscope production in partnership with iHeart Podcast and Exile Media. Produced by Samizdat Audio and hosted by me, Lance Bass. Executive produced by Kate Osborne and Mangesh Hadekador with Oz Woloshin and Kostas Linos. From iHeart, executive produced by Katrina Norvell and Nikki Ettore. From Samizdat Audio, our executive producers are Joe Sykes and Dasha Lisitsina. Produced by Asia Fuchs, Dasha Litsitsinia, and Joe Sykes. Writing by Lydia Marchant. Research by Mika Golubovsky and Molly Schwartz. Music by Will Epstein. Theme by Martin Orstrich. Sound design by Richard Ward. And special thanks to Nando Villa, Melissa Pollock, Will Pearson, Connell Byrne, Bob Pittman, and Isaac Lee. And thanks to Stephen Walker. His book is called Beyond. The astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. If you want to hear more shows like this, nothing is more important to the creators here at Kaleidoscope than subscribers, ratings, and reviews. So please spread the love wherever you listen.